Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, I'm Adam Levy, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. In this series, Business of Science, we're taking a look at how scientists can get their ideas out of academia and into, well, into business. This can be a tricky process, and so we've got six episodes dedicated to helping you with the crucial steps along the way. And perhaps the most daunting step can be the very first. Here's Javier Garcia Martinez, a chemist based at the University of Alicante in Spain and founder of Rive Technology. Rive uses nanotechnology to improve catalysts. I think it's more like a cultural thing, right? When you are in academia, you are so focused to your next paper, to your next grant, to getting ready for uh, your classes or for whatever. It, the path is actually quite clear. It's not easy. Uh, it, it's, it's hard, but... Um, but you know what, what to do. You know what's the next step. Then starting your own company is just a leap of faith. We'll be hearing more from Javier, along with many other researchers turned entrepreneurs, throughout the series. We'll also be talking to the experts who can help you commercialise your research. That includes steps like technology transfer, registering a patent, scaling up, and bouncing back from any setbacks along the way. And in today's episode, we're looking at what it takes to make that leap of faith as an entrepreneur, to commercialise your research and launch a spin-off. Well, firstly, you need to know that you've actually got a good idea. This isn't easy, as what's valuable in academia isn't always the same as commercial value. Barbara Domain Heyman is entrepreneur-in-residence at the Francis Crick Institute in London, where she helps startups start up. As she explains, you always have to keep in mind, is somebody actually going to be prepared to pay for this? And, and why are they going to be prepared to pay for it? And that's a bit of a different mindset. And actually go and check with them, basically, whether they're actually, this is something that's of interest to them. Because if it isn't, then it's best not to waste your time, actually. Asking around is one way to test whether your product actually has a market. 
Patrick Ancatil is founder and CEO of bioengineering company Portal Instruments, which aims to replace needle-based syringes with their needle-free device. He suggests taking things one step further and dipping your toe in the commercial waters before diving all the way in. You know, I think that's the hardest thing. You know, the product market fit is really one that no one has a recipe for it. And my strongest advice there is to try to find a way to test the market with some form of, of prototype product and then learn from it and then iterate and so on. But again, you, you'll never figure it out uh, by just sitting uh, in your study and then kind of imagining what it may be. If all this seems like a lot to go through before even trying to commercialize your pet product, Patrick has some more advice. Starting a company may not work out, but a fear of failure or encountering setbacks along the way shouldn't stop you from taking a risk. I hear all the time, gee, you know, Patrick, should I start a company? Uh, and should I do this or that? I think if you're thinking about it, just don't overthink it. Just do it. Um, I, I do think there is uh, a possibility to take maybe more risk. I mean, of course, don't take unnecessary risk. All right, don't mortgage your home, uh, you know, just for this or those sorts, you know, and you may not like it. I mean, you may love it, but you never know if you don't do it. So that's, that's, that would be kind of my, my advice. Patrick says this not because he thinks all businesses started by scientists are bound to succeed, but because scientists are highly employable. That means even if the business doesn't work out, it doesn't mean the end of your career. Instead, it's just the start of a new chapter. We'll get to dealing with unexpected setbacks in a later episode. But for now, let's get back to getting started. Because once you've decided that starting a business is for you, and that your product is worth it, well then you have to start convincing other people too. Here's Patrick again. I think, I think uh, as an engineer, I think it's very hard um, because you look at the spec, it's, oh, the specs is good, you know, it's, what else do you want to know? It's great, you know. But, of course, it's not that simple. If you want your product to make it in the commercial world, you first have to sell that idea to people, most obviously to secure funding. This means going well beyond the technical details of your product to understand what investors and clients are actually looking for, questions that academics aren't necessarily used to answering. Here's Vai Vu of Helio Heat, who are commercializing a technology for concentrated solar power plants, which Vai developed, in part, during her PhD around a decade ago. I always thought, okay, if you have a good product, then it should be enough, right? But it's not. Um, there's so much stuff around it. You have to always convince other people that your technology is really good because you spent like 10 years on it and you know that it's good and you know why it is good, but other people don't. So you have to spend at least, I don't know, 10 years again to convince other people <laughs> to believe in that as well. The process of pitching can feel deeply unnatural to someone from the academic world. After all, selling a product is a long way from setting out a piece of research in a seminar. This isn't just about the content of the pitch, but also the entire tone and approach of these kinds of talks. Here's Vi again. So personally, I'm not used to that at all, to like really pitch in front a lot of people and to try to convince them that our product is really, really cool. <laughs> I think I really have to learn that. 
But I think the more I do that, um, the more the better I get. And also, I'm pretty much convinced by our product. So I really believe that this is something what the world needs and also can be really part of changing somehow. So yeah, you have to learn somehow to, to also be a salesman. <laughs> so. so how does an academic begin to get the skills needed to be a successful salesperson? Well, fortunately, you're not on your own. Daniel Batten is an investor with Exponential Founders Fund. He's also a coach for potential entrepreneurs with Beyond the Ceiling. That means he has a lot of experience helping scientists get used to pitching their ideas. I've now worked with over 500 scientists who have some ideas that could be commercialized. So I got Daniel on the phone and asked him to share his tips and tricks for a killer pitch. It may seem overwhelming, but Daniel explains that it's not something you're born with. So pitching's the first skill that you should spend effort in getting good at. Don't think I'm not good at it. Um, just think I have the capacity to get better at it. Um, I can tell you, honestly, I was not that great at it. And I got told that by a number of investors uh, very directly. And I had a moment where I had a decision. Either I could step down and find someone else. Well, that wasn't going to happen. Or else I could just choose to learn to get good. Is, is there something which for you kind of separates the science startups from the other kinds of um, work you do? I think the big difference I notice is with one of the things I love working with scientists is that there's just so much integrity because, um, let's face it, no one comes to science to make money, right? You do it because you love what you're doing and you want to make a difference or you just love science or you want to go deep into something. Um, and so that's that's actually a really good basis, ironically, for starting a business is if you're doing something because you love it, not because you're trying to do it for profit. That's a good motivation and actually makes you more likely to be successful, funnily enough. Now, when it comes to pitching, what do you think is the first thing that people need to think about when they're they're starting to develop their pitch? Obviously, you have the message, and that's the part that everyone gravitates to, having a great message. But it turns out that's only one component of four, so and they're all very important. So message is one thing. Second thing is it's not a grant application. So unlike a grant application, you've actually got to deliver the thing. So how you deliver it, the energy you bring to it, your your gestures, your movement, your intonation, your ability to pause, all of those delivery features actually matter a great deal. As much as in a movie, you don't want to see a great script with some lousy actors. And then the third element is your mindset. Um, if you're going in thinking, oh, this is probably going to be no good, you know, there's a low chance of getting funding anyway, they probably won't want to understand it. I shouldn't be doing this anyway. Someone else is much better. That's going to affect your confidence and it's going to impact your performance. Um, also, if you're too intent on uh, achieving a certain result, uh, people can tell. So a certain element of non-attachment mixed with confidence, the mindset makes a huge difference. And the fourth element is is being tactically smart, um, knowing that hey, the pitch is important, but how you get to that pitch and then what you do afterwards is also really important. Now, those tips are really useful, I'm sure, for, for many researchers, but how, how do you actually put this into practice? How, how do you actually do the nuts and bolts of developing a pitch when you're not used to this kind of public speaking, maybe just seminars? First thing is use a structure, and the structure is easy, but it's like a, it's like a template or a tool. So if you're going to build a house, you should have a hammer or a nail gun. So that's it's a simple, and the, the internet's full of them. 
before you have the right to talk about your science, it's important you talk about the problem you solve so that when you talk about the science, people can see that it's relevant and they're ready and they're curious and they're interested. So the order's important. And then from there you go on to, there's a bunch of other things you talk about. Hey, who else is doing what? Is anyone else doing something similar? You know, how how are you going to make money doing this? You know, what's your business model? So don't make the mistake of spending too much time talking about the tech. Actually, the best way, if you really want to talk about your science or technology, the best advice is not to talk about your science or technology at the first pitch. Because then people go, okay, I get it. This sounds relevant. And then they say, okay, right, tell me more. And then you can go for gold. For a lot of researchers, the idea of hyping up your work and making it sound as exciting and cool as possible might sound quite well, maybe quite daunting, maybe even counter what they've they've learned. How do you get over this hurdle? Uh, don't get over it. Don't hype it up. It's a really bad idea. Um, keep your scientific integrity. Uh, for one thing is, as a scientist, you, you won't be able to do that. You just won't be able to hold yourself in high integrity and you'll hate doing it. So don't. Um, pitching is not about trying to make things sound better than they are. It's about trying to make things sound as good as they are with style and succinctness. And so one thing I always say to scientists, I say, hey, look, if you're uncertain about some things, tell people, tell us, because that actually builds trust, provided that you also tell us, you know, get us excited about what it could do. That combination of talking about what you have the potential to do and then candor and transparency about the uncertainties and caveats is actually the best formula for being influential with people. Now, in people's pitches, are there some some points that people often forget to mention, uh, for, forget to share? It's all the stuff which has to do with the commercials. So it's like, okay, how are you going to make money from this? It's important. <laughs> it's important because remember this, you're pitching to uh, not a government body, not a group of scientists, but you're pitching to someone who, yes, they're interested in your science. Yes, they want to work well with you. And they themselves want to see how they can get a return on their investment. So that means they want to hear you talking about how you are going to get customers for your product or how you're going to license what you're doing. Um, so that's important. Um, simply talking about how much money you're looking for, um, being prepared to ask. I think sometimes people feel shy to ask for money. Practice those parts that you feel less confident with. And just realize that it's um, when you're asking for that money, you're not asking for it for you, you're asking for it so that your technology, which is your baby, actually gets to uh, have an impact on the world. Um, those are the parts that people often leave out. It's those commercials, particularly scientists. Of course, the pitch itself is just half the process. Do you have any tips on responding to, to questions? So when it comes to question time, uh, it's it's very different. It's I say pitching is like a stage play and questions is like improvisation. So I would suggest that you practice and you practice. Um, this is a technique I use a lot in the coaching. I ask people to get in a group and I get one person to uh, be like a really uh, quite aggressive and almost rude investor. The, the ruder the better because it will help people prepare and just asking really pointed questions in, in an aggressive or in a tone which is most likely to put the person pitching off their stride. Most investors don't use that style. 
But if you can practice for that, and if you can practice not only questions, but a, a slightly adversarial practice session, then by the time you actually get those questions, you'll feel ready, you'll feel overtrained. One thing that I've personally always liked to do just in preparation for interviews is thinking, what is the question I really hope they don't ask? And then trying to answer that. Absolutely. Um, you can actually tell how good your pitch was based on the, on the type of questions. Now, people are asking questions at the end, such as, so what is it again? Or so how are you going to make money? Or so is it a software or hardware? Uh, that tells you you've done a really bad pitch. Um, if they're asking questions such as, so in the process of scaling to a billion-dollar company, tell me about how specifically um, you're going to enter this market. What that tells you is they're interested, they're intrigued, they're starting to assume that it's possible you could get big, and they're now diving into some specifics. So that's a good type of question. The, the questions you should be getting at the end should be more about, hey, you made some bold claims, give me some evidence for them. With your pitch, go for curiosity, not closure. We've covered a lot, but are there any other, I suppose, common mistakes that you, you come across all the time? Oh, look, plenty. Uh, real simple delivery thing is how you engage with your slides. So we have this wonderful tool called PowerPoint. And look, be honest, what's the most common neuro association? We say, hey, look, I'm going to give you this PowerPoint presentation. You know, is it a highly energized risk? Oh, great, I can't wait. Or is it like, oh, gosh. So, so I think we all know the answer. And there's a reason for that, and that's most people don't know how to use it. They do a terrible job. It's stuffed full of information. It's got way too much for people to read. And they basically end up making a decision between reading the PowerPoint or listening to you. Bad idea. But when you're actually using it as a visual aid along with you as a speaker, it's the prop, not the main actor. And so as such, it should have very few words. Number one. Number two, one idea per slide. Number three, don't use fonts that are less than 20 points because I'm not going to read them. And the other thing is you see people do this a lot, turning around and reading their slides. Now, the moment that happens, you've actually lost uh, one of the most powerful delivery techniques to connect to your audience, and that is your eyes because you've lost eye contact with your audience. It's one of the most common mistakes. And I say this not because it, it adds professionalism. You lose connection. And when you lose connection with people, you can't influence them. And when you're not influencing them, they won't invest. That was Daniel Batten. It might seem like getting started in the commercial world is overwhelming, but Barbara Domaine Heyman, who we heard from earlier, is keen to emphasise that you can do it. You just have to teach yourself the skills, much like you do in academia. I mean, none of it is, none of it is rocket science. I mean, compared to actually doing science... You just have to learn how the world operates and you have to kind of listen very carefully um, and you have to build networks. I mean, that is so important. And nobody's born with this knowledge. Everyone has to learn it at some point. So, um, yeah, always ask. Pitching is just one of the skills to hone to commercialise your research. And next episode, we're going to be talking about a career landmark that you almost certainly need, getting your product patented. For many scientist entrepreneurs, this is a huge step, equivalent perhaps to getting your first paper published. Or is it? Well, we'll be finding out next week. Make sure you tune in for that discussion. This has been Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam Levy.
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.